This is The World from Palestine with me, Helena Cobbin, talking from Washington, D.C., with my friend and colleague, the Palestinian scholar Yusuf Al-Jamal, who's with us from Sakaria, Turkey. The World from Palestine is a project of Just World Educational. Visit our website to learn more about it. Hey there, Yusuf. How are things with you this week? Everything is all right. Thank you, Helena. What about you? Eh, you know, waiting for springtime, fearing the outbreak of global nuclear war. I mean, what else can we uh, worry about? <laughs> But there It is... must be very worrying in D.C. these days. It is a little bit, mm. yeah. But uh, I don't think the nuclear weapons are going to fall this week. So let's focus on Palestine and let's focus on the, on, on the podcast. Israel yeah. is a nuclear power too. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I've written a bunch about that. So Yusuf, let's get going. Can you tell people about this podcast series a little bit? In this podcast series, Helena and I are exploring the intersections between the Zionist settler colonial project in Palestine, which is still going on today, and the many other settler colonial projects that Western European nations have pursued in the West non-European continents throughout the past 600 years. Yusuf and I believe that studying what's happening in Palestine today can help us all understand a lot about the roots of Western imperialism and vice versa. We also believe it's important to resurrect and honor the stories of anti-colonial resistors throughout history and to strengthen the ties of solidarity among all the anti-colonial activists still struggling today. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the ways that settler colonialists deal with the very rich cultures of the indigenous peoples whose lands they settle in and steal. In Palestine, as elsewhere, these approaches can range from campaigns to completely erase the culture of the indigenes, to campaigns to steal and appropriate key aspects of that culture and claim it as their own. Both such approaches inflict real harm on the original peoples of the colonized lands, not least because they are a key part of the broader effort to dehumanize, deculture, control, dispossess, and far too frequently throughout history also to kill off the natives. But before we dive into this week's discussion, I want to ask Yusuf to bring us up to date on this week's main headlines from Palestine. Israeli forces have assaulted a young man with Down syndrome in Jerusalem, which went uh, viral all over international media. Abbas have issued a decree concerning the PLO, uh, an institution of the PA. Israel's defense minister says there will be a Palestinian entity, not a Palestinian state in the future. And last but not least, Israeli authorities freeze the expulsion order of Fatma Salim from Jerusalem following protests by um, Palestinians in the city. It's always a lot happening there in historic Palestine with the, those settler colonialists that are controlling it and doing all those things. Interesting little piece there about uh, Mahmoud Abbas subordinating the PLO to the PA. 
I had not heard that. So thanks for sharing. But now we're going to get back to the topic of the approaches that settler colonial powers adopt toward the culture and the cultural expressions and artifacts of the indigenous peoples whom they encounter. How do you see this issue from your, your spot, Yusuf? Uh, Helena, I think this is part of um, their feeling of being inferior. So they try to subjugate the indigenous uh, population and stealing their own uh, cultural heritage, uh, cuisine, clothes, and even habits and names because colonizers very often feel inferior. And so they try to uh, compensate, you know, this feeling of uh, inferiority by stealing, um, you know, the indigenous people's um, culture and uh, history. And again, for this to happen, uh, they have to subjugate the indigenous people. Sometimes they have to crush them. The examples where indigenous people were eliminated completely, um, in other cases, they, they, they were subjugated, which allows the colonizers to take over their language, names, history, culture, and cuisine. In the case of Israel, uh, cultural appropriation is not just uh, a one-time practice, it's a state policy, and it has been going on for 73 uh, years. Uh, they tried to remove Palestine uh, off the map, at the same time, they try to remove Palestine from the imagination and the uh, collective memory of the Palestinians, including our own food, uh, names of our cities. Uh, for example, um, I come from a village called Aqr, which is a, a biblical town, and today it's named Kiryat Ikron. So they try to choose names that are closer to, to the original name. I think this is part of uh, cultural appropriation. Uh, there are other examples, for example, from North America, where Americans have borrowed Mexican hats during the uh, Civil War when they were exposed to Mexico. Uh, and we have also, you know, some Australians or Australian artists copying up original arts. And again, tattoos and Halloween costumes uh, being uh, appropriated uh, by the uh, settlers. Uh, so there are different examples also in sport when it comes to sports. Um, and we have Cleveland Indians and Atlanta Braves are still, you know, names that are offensive to uh, Native Americans. They are still being used as of today. So I have to interject here since I'm here in Washington, D.C., which, by the way, we want to rename it as Douglas Commons after Frederick Douglass. And so it keeps the uh, DC initials. And then we would do away with the name of George Washington um, and, and honor Frederick Douglass. But here we had a football team that used to be called the Redskins. And honestly, in a city that ha has a lot of racial divisions between the black and white people, the Washington Redskins was the one thing that would bring people together, but native peoples quite rightly protested over the course of decades against this use of a name. And so they finally were forced to, to jettison the name 
And they have just announced another name, which I think is a terrible name. It's very militaristic. They're going to call it the Washington Commanders. Um, but who knows? So, yeah, that happens everywhere. Um, and for the, for the settler colonialists, sometimes there's a sort of a progression. First of all, they might appropriate the name. Um, like when the Zionists first went, well, in the 1930s, let's say 1920s, early 1940s, when they were in Palestine, they were very proud to call themselves Palestinians. Um, and, you know, because they, they looked at the Jews in Europe as being old fashioned or decadent or passive. And they said, no, we are Palestinian Jews. We are the Palestinians. And then very soon after 1948, we had Golda Meir saying, there's no such thing as Palestinians. You know, they, they don't exist. So their whole kind of attitude toward Palestinianness shifted with the, the power balance on the ground. So settler colonialists do, I think, use different tactics at different times. I grew up in England, and there we had a massive appropriation of cultural artifacts from India, from Egypt, from Iraq. They, they just, like, they literally looted these huge, great, stone artifacts and beautiful sculptures and everything and took them back to the British Museum. And somehow they, there they, they represent British culture. I'm not quite sure how, th how that works. <laughs> but yeah, that, that was a large scale appropriation. Um, have you had things like that happen in Palestine? So um, I will speak about the Gaza Strip, where uh, in 1980s, during the um, Second Palestinian Intifada, Moshe Dayan came to our uh, refugee camp because Israelis have um, uncovered some, uh, you know, archaeological discoveries, and they took them. To, to Israel and they placed them in museums uh, that are now Israeli and they, they again um, introduce it to tourists and uh, Israelis alike as an Israeli um, uh, thing. So we have some similar things and I've been to the British Museum and I've seen how um, Britain has literally uh, moved whatever it got uh, to this museum from other countries, it colonized, except for food. Uh, I think the uh, British people <laughs> were not smart to learn, uh, you know, food habits and cuisines of other nations, but they stole their um, history. We've seen the uh, Egyptian, you know, different items of Egyptian history, Iraqi, um, Indian, uh, being moved to uh, Britain. And there was this joke that Britain couldn't move the pyramids because they were too heavy. Otherwise, we would that, have... That was the only reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, have, uh, we might have found them in, in Britain today. Um, and again, you know, it's a continuation, I think, of uh, denying indigenous people their existence. In the case of Palestine, it's a continuation of ethnic cleansing. It's not just... Uh, the physical presence of people, but their history, their memory, as Ilan Pape has called um, 
this process the uh, memory side that is done by by Israel against the Palestinians trying to erase the Palestinian um, culture and memory especially the collective memory of the Palestinians uh, and it, and then once this is done this paves the way for um, Zionists and settler uh, uh, colonizers to claim that they have a place in Palestine uh, and hence we have what um, Israel is called today the birthright that they have a birthright connection to this land even though they are not uh, they were not many of them were not born in, in Palestine and again this is a continuation of what started in 1948 Nakba where thousands of Palestinian books uh, were stolen from Palestinian houses bookshops and libraries and there is a, a movie a film called the great book robbery that i recommend people to to watch that speaks of of this reality and the theft of palestinian books and paintings and arts uh, which is happening also as i said in other parts of the world in, in australia where indigenous aboriginal arts is being uh, stolen and appropriated and not only this they have continued with archaeological digs and the graves, they found uh, Canaanite, you know, graves of uh, giant Palestinians. Uh, and again, international media have uh, portrayed this as uh, an Israeli discovery. However, Israel did not exist then. So actually, regarding books, you know, when I was in Lebanon, there was a professor at the American University of Beirut called Kamal Salibi. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, Kamal Salibi was a very expert, um, well, in, in the languages, in the Semitic languages, not just, you know, Hebrew and Arabic, but all the very early ones. And he, he would look at the early chapters of the Hebrew Bible um, and look at the place names. And he said, none of these place names, when they say, you know, I traveled three days and I came to a ridge and beyond the ridge, there was a, there was a river. None of them, you can't map them onto the map of Palestine. The place where you can map them is onto the map of Eastern Saudi Arabia. And there you can actually follow. So he, he, he wrote an amazingly powerful book called The Bible Came from Arabia which, of course, the, the Zionists have been trying to suppress ever since. But it is true that, you know, they, they're not finding historic Jewish relics in the area of today's Palestine. They're finding Canaanites, they're finding a lot of Muslim relics, they're finding Crusader relics. Um, so, so I think what you said at the beginning, that the reason that settler colonialists engage in cultural erasure is because of their kind of feeling of insecurity. Well, gosh, you know, <laughs> we're not actually people from here, but, you know, we have to work really hard to make it seem like we are. I'm afraid I'm going to have to just interject here with my friendly reminder that this podcast is brought to you by Just World Educational. Um, if you go to our website, www.justworldeducational.org, you'll find a prominent link to the online learning portal that presents all the past episodes of the world from Palestine, um, along with transcripts and lots of really interesting related background material that has been pulled together by our amazing cultural um, 
helper and, and audio engineer, Amel Zaroub. And on our website, uh, www.justworldeducational.org, you'll also find many other great educational resources and crucially a donate button that lets you support this podcast series and all the rest of our work. So anyway, back to our discovery of <laughs> cultural erasure and cultural appropriation. Um, I just wanted to run through a sort of little list of, of the kinds of things we're talking about here. We're talking about place names, as, as you did. Um, in the West, we always call your capital city Jerusalem, but the indigenous Arab name for it is actually Al-Quds. Um, so that, that's one big um, example. Interestingly, here in Turtle Island slash North America, um, a lot of the place names were appropriated from the indigenous people. So you started off like on the East Coast with New York and New Hampshire and New Jersey, like they had brought them across the Atlantic. But then you also got Massachusetts and Idaho and, you know, names of states, of cities, of neighborhoods, a lot of cultural appropriation going on there. Um, we're talking about food. And just on the food issue, I have to say, the, the Indian food you get in London is pretty good. And right here <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> in and around Washington, D.C., we actually have restaurants from all the places that the CIA has been active over the last 70 years. So you can get, you know, really fabulous Afghan food, Iraqi food, um, food from Ethiopia, food from every place the CIA has been. And then they have, you know, mounted failed coups. And then as they do that, they bring out their local, um, proxy people and, and set them up in restaurants around Washington, D.C. It's, I mean, that is a weird thing about Washington, D.C. Um, so we're also talking about dress. And of course, we've seen the amazing um, efforts that Palestinians in diaspora and in, inside Palestine have made to cling on to and continue to develop the art of Tatri's embroidery. Um, which is just amazing um, because there was a time when, when Israelis claimed it for themselves. You know, they, they would say, oh, this is Israeli Bedouin embroidery. And they still <laughs> and, and do. Lastly, <laughs> I guess that's true. Just lastly on my little list is the, is the issue of spiritual practice, which is an important aspect of culture. And definitely here in the North America and South America, and Caribbean cases, you know, first of all, there was very, very deliberate attempts to erase indigenous spiritual practice and force everybody to become so-called Christians. And then, you know, in a later stage, people are saying, oh, let's rediscover this really interesting um, spiritual practice of waving tobacco around or, um, in the case of India, it was yoga, which, you know, got appropriated as part of the kind of the, the yippie culture, yuppie culture in, here, here in the West. So, you know, all of these 
cultural expressions are what give a people, a community, a sort of meaning and 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 under underscore their their relationship to the land they live in. And so that's why I guess they have to be erased or appropriated, depending. <laughs> yes, I think um, speaking of Palestinian traditional addresses, uh, we have uh, address for every single city that represents the city. Uh, for example, um, the one from Hebron, Al-Khalil, um, has grapes on it because Al-Khalil is famous for grapes. So every single city is, is different. If you get closer to Gaza, it becomes more uh, somehow um, identical to, to, to each other. But if you go further to, to the north or to the coast, uh, it's different. Uh, and then they've been, they've been trying, Zionists have been trying really hard to uh, appropriate Palestinian dresses, traditional dresses where, for example, recently when there was this um, beauty contest, uh, Miss Israel, I think, um, organized in Israel, they uh, asked participants, and there are some people who boycotted this um, uh, contest for political reasons, they asked participants to wear the traditional Palestinian uh, dresses. And, and you, as you said, they took them to the Naqab uh, among some Palestinian Bedouins to say, oh, look at Israel, you know, it's a diverse country uh, and people are celebrating and these um, uh, participants were somehow celebrating the theft of Palestinian um, culture, not just Palestinian thoughts. We have kofiyas. Kofiyas mean a lot to Palestinians. It reminds Palestinians of their history, of the great revolution of 1936, where villagers have worn um, kofiyas so that Israeli uh, British story um, officers wouldn't identify uh, fighters in the revolution because many of them used to wear uh, kofiya and many of them came from villages. So every single one um, wore these uh, kofiyas and they're still uh, one of the uh, most prominent symbols of, of the Palestinian culture. Uh, it's the colors of this kofiya is white and um, uh, black. And again, the, the Israelis have their own version of this kofiya. It's white and, um, uh, what's the word? Um, blue. Blue. <laughs> but sometimes, so, sometimes a Palestinian kofiya is white and red. I, I think is that... Sometimes like a political marker that it's people in the popular front who wear the red and white. Yes. Because the, also, the only other people who, who wear red and white are the Saudis, as far as I know, which is bizarre. Yes. Uh, traditionally, it's uh, white and black, uh, but there are some people uh, uh, who wear white and red for political reasons, as you said. Many of them are leftists. Uh, uh, also, white and red is more popular in Jordan, and you know the um, mixture that Jordan has of, of Palestinians. So some Palestinians try prefer to um, wear the red and uh, white one, but it's not as popular as the white and black one. So, when the Zionists are trying to 
like appropriate your culture or um, this thing that you mentioned, the movie about them stealing whole libraries of books. I mean, that, that really sounds terrible to me if somebody came and stole my library. <laughs> but what can Palestinians do? What have they done that has been successful in resisting this, these attempts at cultural erasure? I mean, what are you seeing either in Palestine or around the world that, that seems to be most successful? I think the uh, most successful example we have here is Palestinians in the diaspora, Little Palestine in Chicago, uh, where you go there, you feel like you are in Ramallah or Jerusalem <laughs> rather than the U.S. Uh, you find all types of Palestinian restaurants and shops, names in Arabic. Uh, you would eat the best maqlouba in the world in the U.S., Palestinian maqlouba. So I think the example of Palestinians in the diaspora that despite 73 years of colonization, starting from 1948, and before that, um, almost 20 years of British uh, colonization, Palestinians still stick to the culture and food and names and language. Uh, you would find Palestine anywhere you travel. Wherever Palestinians are, there is Palestine. And, and again, this proves that all Zionist attempts to um, erase the Palestinian culture have failed. And Palestinians still, many of them are still uh, committed to their culture and food. Uh, we have falafel and hummus being appropriated and Israel is trying to introduce it as uh, Israeli food and cuisine. But I think regardless of what they, they're trying to do, um, the majority of the world agree that falafel and hummus today are Palestinian. So this again speaks of the failure of, of the Zionist um, project. You know, when uh, Leila Al-Haddad first came to the United States, for, she came to college here, and I think her elder brother was already here. And um, he took her to she has this beautiful story about how he took her, her to New York and she saw falafel stands everywhere. And she was like, wow, they even have falafel here in New York. He said, yeah, they're, they're all run by, by Israelis. You know, the, the whole infrastructure of falafel stands in New York at that time. So that must have been, let's say, in the 90s, early 90s. That's why I was really, you know, delighted to publish her book, The Gaza Kitchen, and there have been so many other Palestinian cookbooks um, and Palestinian restaurants that over the past 20 years have arisen and have really reclaimed this fine cuisine for, for Palestinians. So, you know, I, I think one of the things the um, Israelis do, I mean, they still try to open restaurants here and they call it Mediterranean cuisine. You know, they, they, they kind of, they don't call it, usually Israeli cuisine, because they understand that that they will really... They language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed. Um, I just thought of another thing that's like a way for the Palestinians hang on to their culture and, and other people's too, and that's dance, actually, the Debke. And, you know, in several of the Palestinian-American community centers, having, you know, Debke teams and Debke classes for... for 
young men. I mean, that, that's kind of a big new thing, which is, is it, it's fun to see, you know, because it gets the young people together and they use up a lot of energy and, and keep that Debke tradition alive. So, and music, I suppose we should also say like music and, you know, traditional forms of cultural expression in general, um, very important often in other cultures around the world, both dance and music and um, art, very important for spiritual practice. Music is important. We have thousands of um, songs about Palestine and Palestinian culture. So some of them were poems that were turned into uh, songs. For example, poems by Mahmoud Darwish. I miss my mother's bread. And now it became a very popular um, uh, song. We have uh, songs talking about very important historical events. For example, the execution of um, three prominent Palestinians in 1936 from the prison of Akka. And there is a song that says from Akka uh, So there was a funeral coming out of uh, Akka's prison. And it is still, you know, this song is still popular as of now. Uh, it's been, you know, it's been almost 90 years, more than 90 years um, since uh, 19, uh, you know, 1930s. Uh, there are also songs about the first Palestinian Intifada and how Palestinians, uh, I remember this song uh, about a child uh, called Ya Muhammad Ya Zain al-Ward or Ya Zir al-Ward. So you are, you know, the most beautiful among flowers, Muhammad. And Muhammad is a baby who throws his um, um, milk bottle at Israeli soldiers and they think that it's a, a, a bomb, so they run away. Uh, I think uh, songs are really important in documenting, you know, these historical events. That's great. Yeah, maybe you could write something about that, Yusuf. I mean, I yes, it's a great idea for an article. <laughs> <laughs> so we're probably getting toward the end here, and you know, we've really scratched the surface. Um, so thanks so much yusuf for bringing like your the richness of your personal culture and your experience onto our podcast um see you again next week thank you helena and see you next week listeners be sure to check back with us next week and tell your friends about the world from palestine the world from palestine can be found on all major podcast platforms and is a project of just world educational Please donate to support our groundbreaking conversations here. Our audio engineer and general cultural consultant is Amel Zaru, and our music is from Feruz's beautiful El Qutzilatika. For English speakers, that is Old Jerusalem. For the world from Palestine, this is Yusuf Al Jamal and Helena Carbon, hoping all of you out there stay safe. <laughs>